Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. Last week we left off with Jesus telling his disciples that there was a traitor among them, which is where we'll pick things up. Look at verse 22 with me. And the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Jesus stunned the table with a revelation of divine truth that one of his disciples was going to betray him. All the disciples exchanged inquisitive looks and expressed their alarm. And I have no doubt that Judas feigned disbelief as credibly as the others. Judas was as perfect an actor, as accomplished a hypocrite as one can find. Theologians surmise that he was a man of more education and higher social standing than the other disciples. You see, he was not from Galilee, but from Kirioth, which was a much better community. Dr. Ironside said Judas was the real gentleman of all the disciples. In other words, he had class compared to the rest of them. Today, I bet Judas would wear a Brooks Brothers suit and have a Madison Avenue smile. He would know all the right hymns and when to sit down and when to stand up and when to inject the most persuasive cliché. He would also know how to ingratiate himself with the power leaders of the church. And so no one would suspect him of being a traitor. It says the disciples began looking at one another. Literally, the text says they began staring at each other. Can you think of what a riveting moment this is? And what a shocking statement this is. Here they all all are faithfully following Christ. And out of nowhere, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they start looking at each other, probably looking for body language. I can imagine Peter saying to Andrew, did you see when he said that how Thomas' eyes twitched? Did you see that? And so then Peter asked John, who had only turned back a few inches, and to say, who is it? Now, the seating arrangement made it so easy. And so Jesus quietly responded, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, in the culture of that time, to take a morsel from the table, dip it in the common dish, and then offer it to someone else was a gesture of special friendship. So Judas was on one side of Jesus, and John was on the other. Both were near Jesus, but John was close to his heart. Notice that John was in a good place to ask questions. And like that, when you are close to the heart of the Lord, you can always ask questions. In fact, it is the best place in the world to ask questions. We are not always so close to the Lord, however. Sometimes we are further away. Sometimes we are very far away. Moreover, the thing that keeps us away is our sin, because sin is an offense to the Lord, and we sense it even in our sinful state. 
So we turn our backs on him, we move away, and we try to get out of his visual range. Then either we catch the gaze of Christ, confess our sin, and return back to the place of blessing, or we go on determinedly on in our sin and then have to suffer the inevitable results. And so to be near the heart of the Lord is the best place in the world to ask questions. But notice also, it's also the best place in the world to get answers. Now, some answers we always have. The Bible gives them for us. But there are other answers that aren't given publicly, some that the Lord will not shout. For these, we must be close to him. Such answers are only heard as we look up into his face, as we see it reflected in his word. And we hear that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit as he whispers to us, this is the way, walk in it. But sadly, the traitor's heart remained implacably hardened. Judah spurned Christ's final gesture of love to him, just as he had all the previous ones over the last three years. Verse 27, please. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should go give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. I think verse 27 is one of the most chilling verses in all the scripture. Just as willing hearts can receive Christ, willing hearts can receive Satan. Now, the Bible isn't ambiguous on the reality of Satan. He was there in the beginning, appearing as early as Genesis chapter 3, tempting Eve. He's there in the middle in 1 Chronicles 21, tempting David to take a sinful census. And he's there in the end in Revelation 12:9, where he is thrown from heaven to the earth. But Satan is not only the embodiment of sin, he is also the instigator of sin. Of sin. He tempted Adam and Eve to sin and continues to lead humanity astray even today. Satan and his minions try to lure us into sin so that they can then turn around and accuse us of being sinners. He's like a man that is both a firefighter and an arsonist who constantly appears at the disasters that he has helped create. Now, secret sin inevitably warps the mind and twists one's values. And by the way, embezzlers like Judas rarely steal very much at first. But as the pilfering becomes habitual and then ritualized, the thief must learn to rationalize his sin or face the awful prospect of repentance. And driven by his own shame, he must keep his sin a secret. Meanwhile, the cycle of compulsion and shame drives a wedge between his private thoughts and a painstakingly maintained, often pious, public persona. Now, eventually, the sinner accepts his public facade as his true self in a desperate attempt to escape the relentless pursuit of his shame. When caught in a sin, an embezzler almost always appears shocked. 
And in some ways, he is surprised by the accusations because he has convinced himself that no one can see the true person he has long ago concealed. Judas had been cultivating a double life for months or quite possibly many, many years. His charming religious facade kept a seething resentment safely concealed from the others. No one suspected his secret sin, much less wondered about his loyalty. Even as he received the morsel from Jesus and departed into the night without explanation, no one suspected anything. It's not like Judas looked like Freddy Krueger. And by the way, that little phrase, and it was night, carries a tremendous impact when you remember that light and darkness are important spiritual images in the gospel. Jesus is the light of the world. But Judas rejected Jesus and went out into the darkness. And for Judas, it is still the night. It certainly was the midnight of Judas' soul. It was the night that would know no morning. Judas had chosen his own place of darkness and doom. But I wonder, as he left the upper room, That night, whether he paused and looked longingly back at that light, I wonder if part of him even thought about turning back. I wonder. Verse 31, please. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. There is another way in which the cross is Christ's glory. At the cross, he reversed the conduct of the first Adam and thus turned the history of our race around. You see, when Adam decided to disobey God, it was as if he fell over a cliff carrying the whole string of his descendants with him. Now imagine a group of mountain climbers working their way up the side of a mountain. They are all roped together, and Adam is in the lead. But Adam loses his footing and falls over the side. Because of the rope, every one of the climbers is pulled over the edge of the cliff after Adam, and so the whole race follows him. But there at the end of the line is the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he stands fast. He is the anchor of our souls. Because he did not succumb to temptation, because the Lord does not sin, he is therefore able to offer himself up the perfect sacrifice for human sin. And does so, by doing that, he becomes the only stable and safe point of humanity. Consequently, those who are united to him by faith are also likewise saved by him. The fall of Adam, which led to destruction, is reversed by Jesus Christ. By his atonement, Jesus leads those who are his to safety. Now, verse 34, Jesus says he gives us a new commandment. Now, this statement has caused some confusion. Why? Well, even though it was dark, Jesus said to his disciples, this is the hour of glory. I'm going to be leaving, and where I'm going, you can't come. 
So in the meantime, I'm going to give you a new commandment to love one another. A new commandment. Doesn't it say way back in Leviticus that we are to love God and we are to love our neighbor? Isn't that really the message of the entirety of all the scripture? Hadn't Jesus himself said upon these two commandments to love God and to love people, hang all the law and the prophets. What does he mean a new commandment? Look carefully at what Jesus is saying because it is radical. Yes, the Old Testament is filled with commandments and exhortations to love. But Jesus here makes everything new when he says, love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? How does Jesus love us? That's what's new. Paul tells us how he loves us when he writes, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The word love does not, or the word new does not mean new in time because love has been important to God's people even from Old Testament times. It means new in experience, as in fresh. It is the opposite of worn out. Love would take on a new meaning and power because of the death of Christ on the cross. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, love would have a new power in our lives. Jesus called this a new command, although the command to love was as old as the Mosaic Revelation. He did so because his radical love demanded a new object and a new measure. The object now was one another. Now the Jews had watered down the Mosaic teachings so they could love whom they wanted and hate whom they wanted. But Christ changed the object from neighbor to one another, and so now that is a radical new commandment. The reason Jesus calls it a new commandment is that it was raised to an entirely new level and given an entirely new significance. There are really three parts to it. We can say that it was given a new object. It is to be exercised according to a new measure, and it is to be made possible by a new power. Each of these sayings is involved in this. In the first place, the command to love received a new object. It is true that that verse in Leviticus declares that the Jew is to love his neighbor as himself, but the neighbor involved a Jewish neighbor only. Jesus says the disciples are to love one another and that this is to be a witness to the unbelieving world. However, it is obvious from Christ's own example and other teaching that this is not to be a love that is held back from unbelievers. But the commandment of Christ is not only have a new object, it is also exercised according to a new measure. The measure of this love is the standard found in 1 Corinthians 13, where we read, Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envy. It is not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protect, protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the love Jesus brought, and it was a new thing in this world. And third, the command to love one another is also different, and it is made possible by a new power. The power is the power of the Holy Spirit, the very life of the Lord Jesus in each believer, and how much we need that. 
Without it, we cannot love as Christ loved, for such love cannot be achieved by simple human energy. The newness, the unfolding, the fullness of the new commandment is that we are to love in a way that costs us our lives. It is not just loving generally, but loving specifically to the point of death. You see, biblically, there is never true reconciliation apart from someone or something dying. In the Old Testament, reconciliation was impossible without the sacrifice of an animal. In the New Testament, we see the Old Testament topology become reality with the death of the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so, there will never be true reconciliation between the person and that you're angry at or the person that you are estranged from until you say, I'm not going to grind my axe any longer. I'm not going to press this point any further. I'm not going to prove I'm right anymore. I'm just going to die. The question is, will you? Will I? But I'm innocent, we say. Well, so was Jesus. But I'm right, wasn't he? The commandment he gave us is to die to our pride, our complaints, our position, our proofs. What if I die, you ask? Does laying down my life and giving him my rights guarantee reconciliation with that other person? Well, was everyone reconciled to Jesus? No. Not everyone will be born again. Not everyone says, thank you, Lord, for laying down your life for me. When you love like Jesus, some will respond and there will be reconciliation. Others, however, will continue to spit and curse and mock, even as they did to Jesus as he was in the very act of dying for their sins. But if we are to love as Jesus loved, like him, we will pray, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they are doing. Jesus then says, By this kind of love shall all men know that you are my disciples. When you love like I do, to the very point of death. Christ's example of selfless, sacrificial love sets a supreme standard for Christian believers to follow. D.A. Carson writes, The new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, but profound enough that the most mature Christian believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. He says, the more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher his standard appears. The higher his standard appears, the more we recognize our own selfishness, our innate self-centeredness, and the depth of our own sin. If we are to count ourselves followers of Christ, there must be humble service in each of our lives. We must be people of the towel. More specifically, we are to wash one another's feet. While Christ is not excluded washing the feet of those outside the church, it is meant primarily for brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. So if someone in our church needs help, we should all rally around them 
Now that in some respects can be more difficult. For often it's easier sometimes to humble ourselves and wash the feet of those that we don't know. But those in our own families or fellow believers whom we secretly loathe and have not spoken to in many years, Jesus is telling us that it is love that should make this church different from all other organizations. One author in a book described the church this way to his friend. He said, this is a big old ship. She creaks, she rocks, and at times she makes you want to throw up. But she gets where she's going, always has, always will, until the end of time, with or without you. My friends, church crowds come and go, depending on the likes and dislikes of the music, the preaching, the programs, the location of the building. But true Christian community binds people who are united in heart and mind, not just because they like a similar worship style or church program. The church that survives hard times is the church that is bound together in community, not in social media likes, but in genuine friendships and unselfish caring for others. Members stand with each other in good times and in hard times. They are together for accountability, for ministry, and for prayer. What I'm telling us is we all need one another. If I were you, I wouldn't miss church unless it was absolutely unavoidable. You're thinking, yeah, you're the pastor. You have to be here. I can honestly say with God as my witness, long before I was ever a pastor, I was always uber faithful in church attendance. Why? Because I'm so holy? No, just the opposite. Because I realize how very unholy I can be. I needed to be in the midst of the saints back then as much as possible, and I still do this day. I read about in the Journal of American Medicine, a study was conducted where 276 volunteers were infected with a virus that produces the common cold. The study found that people with strong emotional connections did four times better fighting off illness than those who were more isolated. These people were less susceptible to colds, had less virus, and produced significantly less mucus than relationally isolated subjects. I'm not making this up. They produced less mucus. That means it's literally true. Unfriendly people are snottier <laughs> than friendly people. Or how about this? A university researching pain recruited volunteers to test how long they could keep their feet in buckets of freezing water. They observed that when a companion was allowed in the room, the volunteer could endure the cold twice as long as those who suffered alone. The researchers concluded that the presence of another caring person doubles the amount of pain a person can endure. Do you think we need each other? I think so. The one another's of the New Testament are proof that God never expects us to navigate our way solo through Babylon. Such a commitment goes beyond attending church once a week and then going home believing that one has done their duty for God. Keep in mind that since disappointment is so often connected to relationships, we should work on loving others rather than trying to be loved 
by them. Honestly, I think this is the appeal of Facebook, Twitter, and other social networking sites. People will post their status on Facebook and be offended or feel slighted if no one responds to it or comments on it. As Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician, wrote, We do not content ourselves with the life we have in ourselves. We desire to live an imaginary life, life in the minds of others. And for this purpose, we endeavor to shine. That's so true. Most social networking is an attempt to live an imaginary life in the minds of other people. It is vanity disguised as social posting. And when people don't think as much about us as we want or highly as we want, we get offended and resent it. Why? Because pride has so entangled our souls that it has us convinced that we should be more important in other people's minds. Instead, may it be said of us as it was of the early church. One early church father wrote this. They love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a brother. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, get this, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life, and verily this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. God, let that be said of us. We are told in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that love never fails. Now, the verb Paul uses there for the word fail is used elsewhere to describe the demise of a flower as it falls to the ground, withers, and then decays. It carries the meaning of death. But God's love, says Paul, will never fall to the ground, wither, and decay. By its very nature, it is permanent. Listen, it is true. The world can outnumber us. They can outentertain us. They can outfinance us. But never let it be said that they could outlove us. Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. As we finish up, John Ortberg writes When Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. Outsiders on observing this conclude that there is nothing to the religion business except, except perhaps business and dishonest business at that. Insiders, however, see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. Many of the people outside of the hospital are every bit as sick as those on the inside, but their illnesses are either undiagnosed or disguised. It's similar with sinners outside of the church. So Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. They are rather places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and then dealt with. It then goes on to say, the most unbreakable wall in human existence is actually a curtain. It separates people who sit in first class on an airplane from the riffraff in the back. These two classes of people live two different lives. There's no intimacy between them. If you're sitting in first class, a flight attendant will bring you a moist towelette to refresh your face without you even asking. If you're in coach, your facial sweat is your own problem. 
If you're in first class again, without even asking, a flight attendant will bring you a bowl of warmed-up nuts and a free glass of wine and maybe even some slippers. In coach, you do with whatever you brought aboard. Now, he says, normally I fly coach. When I do, I often find myself thinking, those arrogant people up in first class, they ought to be back here with us. We the people. That's where the action is. That's where the goodness is. They ought to be with us. But every once in a while, through some fortuitous circumstance, I end up flying first class. Then I find myself thinking, those poor slobs back there in coach, they must not function at high as a level as I do. They're probably not as smart as me and my friends up here in first class. Here's what I've never seen. He says, I've never seen anyone from first class stand up, rip the curtain in two and say, I'm breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. From now on, we will eat the same food and drink from the same cup, for we are all one. Then there was a time I had to make a decision about which side of the wall I would be on. I was on a flight with my wife. It was Sunday afternoon. A flight attendant approached me, or approached our row and said to me, Mr. Ortberg, we were way undersold. We actually have an upgrade for you. You can go and sit in first class. But they only had one seat for me. There wasn't one for my wife. To make things worse, earlier I had preached that day on Acts 20.35, the passage where Paul quotes Jesus saying, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I talked about giving is the greater blessing that morning. So I turned to my wife, Nancy, and said, Nancy, would you like my upgrade or would you prefer the greater blessing? Because I don't want to get in the way of that. It turns out she was fine with the lesser blessing. My beloved, let me end by saying this. Think of it this way. When you are in the final days of your life, if you are given a deathbed kind of time to look back over your life, what will you want? When death extends its hands to you, where will you turn to comfort that day? Will you hug that college degree in that walnut frame? Will you ask to be carried to your rod so you can sit in your car? Will you find any comfort reading your financial statement? Of course not. What will matter then will be people and your relationship with Christ. And if those relationships will matter most then, shouldn't they matter the most this morning? Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that you are the embodiment of love. You have showed us how to love. You have given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to love. Now I pray, Lord, that you give us the desire to love. And not just those who, we, who are easy to love. Well, that is easy. You said even the tax collectors and Pharisees can do that. But, oh, God, starting with me, help us to love those who are unlovely and show them your love that they may see that there is a difference in this world. We ask in your name. Amen.